Lights. Camera. Action. Hello and welcome to another edition of Movie Madness in association with Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron. I was about to say joined as always by Keenan Bonner, but it has been a short while. Keenan is back. The matchup we're going to be getting into is 2012's The Place Beyond the Pines versus 1976's Taxi Driver. Keenan, how are we doing today? Excited to be back. Thrilled. You sound it. We did in Bruges last week. Um, yeah, a bit of a kick in the teeth not being there for that one. But... Well, it's through to the next round. Remove. So that is in there. Did mm-hmm. have to make a slight correction as with all the goodwill in the world, Kieran last week did try to shout you out and say that was for you, but then did accidentally call you Keegan, which I did correct. So I'm sure you listened anyway, but just in case you didn't, um, the I, thought did cross, I did, I did cross that one off and it was, a, it was a narrow win too, actually. Um, both preferred in Bruges, but you know how the categories can be sometimes. Styles make fights. Then we had Goff filling in the week before and we thought you Take probably wouldn't be as thrilled that Saw 2 went through to the next round. I mean, I've got to watch Saw 2. <laughs> well, we'll see. Maybe Goff will come back for that week and be consistent. Um, so that that's uh, got a win. A narrow win again. It's been a close couple of weeks against The Purge. News of the week this week, not too much has happened, but as always, we'll get into what has. Keanu Reeves is returning for the John Wick ballerina spin-off movie. As is your favourite lady on the planet. She, she's in the next headline. Um Okay. Also, the John Wick 4 trailer came out today. I've not watched it because I'm still catching up. But yeah, the trailer came out today. Sure, no. Yeah. And Ian McShane, who starred as Winston in the John Wick franchise, has also been confirmed to return in the Anna Diarmas-led spin-off movie, Ballerina. I I thought that's good news all around. Yeah, and if you want to go three for three, Mm. there's also... In advanced talks at the moment for AAA Studios to produce a John Wick video game. Please, please let there be a John Wick video game. Yeah, I think they've had... Do you not think it's just like perfect for it? Yeah, well, they've been approached before and they were quite hesitant to release the rights to just about anyone because, you know, sometimes you see video game releases and you can almost tell maybe by the lack of hype or just even the price or a quick look at like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you can tell, like, I think they did a couple of Jurassic park ones and not that it would have been a huge interest to me anyway, but you could kind of tell. Mm -hmm. And the Avengers one was similar. The guardians of the galaxy one's probably a perfect example in that it didn't feel like what a film of that size having a video game release should have been. And I guess with John wick, you just look at like the success of even the latest Hitman game? Yeah. So um, what I would love it yeah. to be is either Hitman or hopefully with a little bit of a better engine, no disrespect. 
Um, did you ever play? It's going to be very hard to describe. But did you ever play a game called Army of Two? No, but I know the game. Okay, I'd love it to feel like that, but just updated, modern. It was such a good game. You basically two got you basically just running around and trying to kill drug cartels, or <laughs> even give it Max Payne free vibes. Okay, okay. I randomly remembered the other day uh, the Kane and Lynch video Great. games. Sensational. I wasn't a fan, but I got it kind of late in the Xbox 360 run, whereas this was a fairly early release from memory, so it didn't stack up in the same way. But I remember being at school, and I swapped it with a kid at school for um, TNA Wrestling on the Xbox, and I thought that was a trade that neither of us won, like the Mikitarian Alexis one. I probably came out slightly better there because I got the TNA one from trading it with someone else or something. So I had a whole black market of Xbox 360 games that I didn't realize at the time, looking back. Yeah, I would love it. Even like Max Payne 3 type of thing. Don't know if you ever played that. No, no. Um, but again, I obviously know the, And we know that, that John Wick was based on parts of that, or there was some influences from when we spoke to Chester Helsky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. It need, I think it needs to happen. Yeah, and I'm really surprised. I'm really surprised that we haven't seen it. Like you say, I, I'm really surprised we haven't seen it already. Maybe not for number one, but after the success of number one, I'm really surprised they didn't just launch it into development. Then, particularly but, when you see Keanu Reeves was so involved with Cyberpunk, which yeah, he's in the end. Yeah, but that. It, <laughs> If we wouldn't have had all the issues, exactly. Yeah, it might have been. It might have gone over a lot better. But like, because the people I, I <clears throat> sorry, I haven't played it. But the people I know who have enjoyed lots about it. But they were like, it's hard to enjoy it when there's so many glitches. So, yeah, there's so many glitches and so many bugs. So it, it sounded as though the story and stuff was was cool. Yeah, I, I definitely like the look of it. I've been waiting for it to drop in price because at that point, I'm sure it will actually be a completed game. Yeah. And there won't be as much risk involved. Yeah, when exactly. you've got that PS5 digital, having to pay like even a reduced game is like full price for what you would have used to pay back for when you could buy discs and things. Yeah. Uh, slightly hamstrung there. And something we spoke about recently, I've got some answers. So James Cameron spoke out this week about the way in which film studios blew it with the use of 3D. He said, I think the studios blew it. Just to save 20% of the authoring cost with 3D, they went with 3D post-conversion, which takes it out of the hands of the filmmaker on the set and puts it into some post-production process that yielded a poor result. He continued, I do think that the new Avatar film will rekindle an interest in natively author 3D. Um, I think you could make a very valid point. Well, if you're the one if you're the one directing it and you then get to watch it in 3D, you know whether you can say whether or not it's what you want it to look like and you can change it at that point now. He he was pulling his hair out recently. He was asked about I don't suppose you'd have seen this. Um the trailer for the new Little Mermaid film came out a while back and some other film, but one of the big things it was criticized for was that it didn't look like it was underwater. Nice. And he was asked, look, obviously we've seen the new Avatar trailers. Why was it so important for you? And a, a big thing early in the recording of Avatar 2 is that all the actors had to learn 
how to spend a considerable amount of time underwater to act out certain sequences. Yeah. And he was asked, what, why was it so important for you to learn that? And he quite bluntly said, well, if the film is taking place underwater, it seems a pretty logical decision for me that we film underwater. And he's yep. saying to the intro, I don't know why this is, I, look, I don't even know why you're asking me about this. Like it just, it, he said it just, it just feels lazy or it just feels silly if you're going to record a film where the whole basis of it is underwater and then not do anything with that. So again, a fair point from him. Yeah. And I'm sure if, if nothing else, and I think we said this on the movie madness podcast we did on avatar, if nothing else, I'm sure that film is going to look unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I imagine it will. And finally, Sylvester Stallone says the studio wants to make another Rocky movie, but they'll have to give him a percentage of the character. Hmm. We don't need creed, another Rocky, do we? Yeah, which he has no rights to, which is part of his issue. Yeah, I, I get his problem. Um, I get, I, I get his point. Um, do we need another Rocky film? No. Oh, I'll, I'll watch it. I mean, I'll watch it. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure there's worse sequels coming out, but there we go. Anyway, let's get into this week's films, and we will start with The Place Beyond the Pines. You want to provide for your kid? You got to do that using your skill set. Your skill set? Shazam. Everybody get down on the floor! This is our problem. This is your problem. What are you doing here, man? Please, get down! If you ride like lightning, you're going to crash like thunder. The Place Beyond the Pines. Rated R. Select theaters March 29th. A motorcycle stunt rider turns to robbing banks as a way to provide for his lover and their newborn, a decision that sets him on a collision course with an ambitious rookie cop navigating a department ruled by a corrupt detective. First thing, that quote, if you ride like thunder, eventually you're going to crash like lightning or the other way around. Improvised quote by Ben Mendelsohn and then is used in the entire marketing plan. So I hope they gave him a little extra boost. Yeah, oh, nice. What do you think the critics thought of this? Uh, very favorable. Okay. So the di- the director, hopefully I'm not butchering his name, I read it as, Derek Key in France. Okay. That's how it's written. That's how I'll say it for the duration. Someone can let me know after if I've butchered it. Um, Key in France never allows his viewers to escape the heartbreak of this film, consuming us with a resounding feeling of sorrow over these characters and the way their lives set paths for one another. In the quietly decaying, tragic Americana setting of this fine film, the story is one of far-reaching repercussions and how the loss of the father's virtue lands upon the son. The movie is constructed like a three-act saga, with only the third part failing to satisfy. The third part failing to satisfy does seem to be the consensus. It does, yeah. Yeah. Um, Take one character, actually. Mm. Um, While the contrast between the main characters are all too obvious, each point of difference is skillfully rendered by director Derek Yon France, a rare filmmaking talent. 
Pines doesn't always click, but it constantly aims high. Its ambition proves to be its strength, giving filmgoers looking for something a little more quiet and reflective a satisfying excursion. Now, I actually wanted to start there, and we touched on this last week. Uh, we go back to In Bruges slightly. And I don't know if you can remember the marketing campaign that went alongside In Bruges. No. But so you would see in magazines and things, see this if you liked, and it was like snatch, lock stock, any kind of shoot 'em up film with a bit of comedy added in. Yeah. And it actually pushed a lot of the, not the wrong audience towards it, but it sat people down to be expecting a film that they wasn't. weren't expecting. Yeah. Now, as you've heard in the trailer for this, and as you may have seen if you were to look back, as you would see if you went to look back at the marketing for this, this was sold really as a cops and robbers bank heist film. Yeah. And it isn't really that. If you sat down expecting like Den of Thieves, you'd have left the cinema very disappointed. Yeah. I get what you say. Um, but is it is it more important to be honest with the marketing there, or is it more important to get the bums in the seats and I hope that more like it than don't once they're in there? That's exactly what you're trying to do. Yeah. Cast the widest net and hope you catch as much as you possibly can, though. No? So we, we've gone back several times, haven't we? I don't think you've seen it, but to Jennifer's Body, the Megan Fox film. No, I've never seen it. So... The big thing with that, when you look back on it, is it came out in what, 2008. And all of the consumer research they did, and it, it, it bombed and all of this because they just sent, they focused all of the marketing towards horny teenage boys. Yeah. And I say that like it's putting people down, but if you can imagine, well, not imagine, if you can remember being in school in 2008 and the sheer mention of Megan Fox when we were in like year nine. Yeah. Yeah. It was enough. <laughs> it was fairly clear what they were trying to do. And then yeah. the film is actually about feminine power and. Is it not actually quite, it's supposed to be quite a good film. Yeah. I, I remember enjoying it at the time. Um, but I do remember you're not going to like the comparison here. Whenever <laughs> we've mentioned Piranha, Mm. all of the marketing that you saw over here was essentially oh Kelly Brook takes her top off and she had a lesbian scene in this film and that was what the sun and the star and all of these that was all you saw about the film Yeah. now I did go and see it in 3D at the cinema which I don't know what that says about me But I mean, we with, both know exactly what that <laughs> says about you I was 17, I was 17 with Jennifer's body it was basically they released these um, sly press shots they took of Megan Fox swimming. Oh, and yeah. yeah. There was like a secret strange, top. Strange, strangely, those ones I've seen. Yeah, but they panned her for looking horrible in it, which is mental in itself. But yeah. all of this came out around the same time. And the rest of it was, oh, and by the way, she kisses Amanda Seyfried. Mm -hmm. And so anyone that sat down for that film, thinking they were getting like a teen film with boobs and sex jokes and all of this even if there was some of that that wasn't what they were sitting down to see in in that context and so yeah it wasn't received well so no. long way around to say 
this was marketed to the wrong people. But I do remember. So if it's a film where you have little interest, right, in making a sequel, which is fairly obvious in this, it's not really yeah. what they're looking for. Same with, I presume, because they haven't, well, they weren't with that, with Jennifer's body, but yeah. I might be wrong. Is it, it the, the, to answer your question, if that's the case, then you want to make, basically want to make your nut back and then just hope that enough people like it that word of mouth means you make a profit. Well, I I looked back at when I went to see this and there was a conversation with Kieran actually did the podcast last week and we were debating what to see at the cinema. And this was 2012 and I always reference 2012 on here because either with Sean or Kieran, I watched everything, everything yeah. that was out. And it's actually a great year for films. But we were debating basically whether to take the trip to Cheltenham, which was less convenient to go to the cinema, yeah, or to stay in Gloucester and watch The Evil Dead, which neither of us are really horror people. Neither yeah. of us had seen the original. Yeah. And ultimately we we decided to take the trip. And I say in one of the tweets about it, it's got Ryan Gosling in it and it's got good ratings. And that was basically what we went to go and see it by. So we had no expectations hence why it delivered for me in the way that it did. Um, in the audio commentary, the director says that his financier would only give him the budget if he shrank the 158-page script to 120 pages. He says it tells you a lot about Hollywood that without removing anything, he used a smaller font and extended the margins and mm-hmm. nobody noticed. Yeah, fair enough. Fucking ludicrous that he got away with it. Like, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Now, if we were to talk about this film, and I'm sure if anyone asked you about this film this week, one of the first things you would say about it is, it's long. Um, at, at two hours twenty, it feels like a long film. But that's we were going down the list of films that we've still got left to do, and I think there's eleven matchups left, including mm. this one. Two hours twenty is kind of probably right where we're sat for this bracket, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe yeah, yeah, it's probably about it's probably about the average for this bracket, mate, to be honest. I mean, probably the time for if, if anyone did tune in for <laughs> I think the fourth week in a row to hear American Gangster and City of God. That is one where they are long films. So yeah. it's I think four and a half hours between them. I think, yeah, I think maybe so close to five hours. It's probably, it's probably, it's got to be more than that. American, I think American it might be, is, yeah, almost three hours long. Maybe it's five twenty. I've got several different durations in my head, but that I sounds about right. Anyway, told. this weekend the Premier League ends. Next week we've got a week with nothing, and so we thought we want to do the films justice, even if I've not seen City of God. We want to do them justice, and so we don't want to be in a week where we've cramming them in, rushing through it, which I don't think we do. So hopefully no one thinks we do do that. That's right. We, we, we do our best, don't exactly. we? Exactly. That's the point. So if you are tuning in for those films, you've got to wait another week, but hopefully worth the wait. Uh, co-director and yeah, director Derek Keon France claims that he would not have made the movie without Bradley Cooper cast as Avery Cross. He says he drove five hours to Montreal to meet with Cooper in person to convince him to take the role. He says he did write the role for Cooper as he's at his best playing a guy who's paraded around as a hero, but inside feels corrupted. There's a very specific brief that. 
Yeah, this is post-limitless as well, isn't it? It is. I've actually got a little something about the point in each of these people's careers because I think it's very interesting in how they got this cast together. Hmm. The structure of this film, I said to you before you watched it, I think the only thing I told you about it really was that it has Ryan Gosling in it and it's broken up into three parts. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't listen to your timings, by the way. What was my timings? You said I could. You, you was three forty-minute parts. Well, I'd been wrong there. I'd have missed the end. That? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you said. I'd missed the. I'd have missed the climax to the Gosling story, and just would have that would have completely been just gone. I didn't until the I, next day. Oh, sometimes three, I speak without speak without thinking. I guess three forty-minute parts. That was your words. Now, I've not seen his previous film to this, but I know it contains. Ryan Gosling and a big thing with it was that the narrative structure kind of went back and forth so this is clearly something he likes to do in establishing a story over a period of time and I actually think it works backwards if I'm not mistaken so in this one the difference is we do have the three stories Blue Valentine it's called Mm. it is three parts but they are straight it's a straight linear narrative the whole way through a trilogy or I've seen it referred to as a a triptych. I've never heard that phrase before, so I don't want to come on (laughs) acting like that. That's me. But when I was reading this week, I constantly saw that. But so if you hear me say trilogy and not that that's why, because I still don't really know what it means. Although I can maybe surmise, but yeah, this covers the relationship between two families, one blue collar, the other middle class and their paths cross across two generations in upstate New York. Would you say this kind of structure, if they did a big thing, if on the poster it was like three stories intertwined or something like that, do you think this kind of thing would put people off or do you think this is something a bit different and interesting for people tuning in? I think it would put certain people off, most definitely. What What did you think? Do you think... If you take away the context of the film, in terms of establishing the narrative this way, what do you think about putting a film together like this? Um, what do I think? Um, so, without Joe, what? Just oh, as as an overall, I mean, it's yeah, hard to do a... it. It's hard to do it without context because, in theory, yes, you can make the best film in the world telling three linear stories, but alternative. Uh, at the same time, yeah, you could completely ruin the film you're making. So without context, it's it's hard. It's okay. not it's not that difficult a structure. So I saw it described, and I was going to ask your take. I saw it said that this multi generational plot spanning two and a half hours can feel more novelistic than cinematic. I'm not sure that's meant as a. I don't know if that's meant as a compliment. No, I don't think it is either. But I no. just didn't know if that was your takeaway because when I was thinking about I think this would read quite well as a book if that was something uh, that yes yeah I do think it would read quite well because it is quite clearly chaptered out for you um, yeah. so yeah to put it bluntly it's three film it's not three films slapped into one it is very much unified it does run through I think certain parts are delivered better than others which we'll get into because I, we're going to speak about them in order. I think after part one, you 
perhaps struggled to get attached to anyone post Ryan Gosling. And that's obviously the danger then of having it run through. If you're so if you're so attached to the character in the first part, probably gonna take a bit more to warm up to anyone afterwards because you're missing that initial character that's gone so soon. Yeah. Um yeah, it, it does. Yeah, and then I mean, moving to moving to the second part about the guy who is is responsible <laughs> yeah, for his yeah. death is then it's a bit like ah, gives a fuck. So I was reading, as you said, the reviews as I do, and I took this down from RogerEbert dot com. Unfortunately, he was no longer with us at the time, but someone on his website, and yeah. they say. We begin the movie by following a tattoo-spangled man as he makes his way through a carnival crowd, arriving in a tent containing a few hundred cheering fans and a globe-shaped metal cage. This audacious extended tracking shot will be familiar to fans of Martin Scorsese, and it immediately tells us we're about to experience a film of considerable ambition. You don't even try to make a play like that unless you have confidence in your creative arsenal. Did you take anything away from that initial shot? Because it did feel not different to me, but it, it did feel like, okay, we're watching something that clearly a lot of work has gone into. I, I, uh, it still mystifies me to this day, it, like the tracking thing and how much people fall over it. Just, I don't get it. So there's one in the climax of Taxi Driver, and yes. we're going to get to that. That one took three months for them to set up. Yeah. I and I get it, it's a lot of work, but I I do think maybe it, it could well be a me problem, but quite often it's just lost on me. So you like the one in Goodfellas, though, don't you? I like I like almost every show in Goodfellas. Mate, so is, is the difference in Goodfellas that I think the one in Goodfellas tells you more of a story as you go through? It does, yeah. Whereas this one is supposed to establish clearly one character. Yeah, they say they had a real issue when filming this, despite the fact. Their, their paid extras to be there that when they were studying the footage back afterwards it always felt like someone was looking at Ryan Gosling like he was Ryan Gosling which that was the explanation they gave and so what they did is some of the um, guys behind the scenes they put them in these massive bunny rabbit masks and they walked them around the area of the shot and anyone that was an extra had to be focused on one of these four people at any one time because the whole thing there is this guy is quite auspicious he's blending in to everyone before he does this great stunt and he has his little crowd afterwards but i thought that was strange because it seems to me like it'd be fairly simple to just look away but yeah maybe that uh, does tell you from early the the vision and the level of focus that's going into this, that even if one person is looking at Ryan Gosling, they're not taking this take. Yeah, yeah I suppose so. Ryan Gosling, actually, no, before I ask you that, how impressive do you think you would find that bike routine in person? I've seen it in person. How impressive did you find it? It was fucking awesome. I was watching it thinking... I would know that's impressive, but I don't know how long this is entertaining for. I saw it when I was a kid, and it was like the craziest thing in the world. <laughs> and they did another one outside of a metal ball, on like a, just on like a, I don't even know how you describe it. It was like a, it was like a massive wooden circle, 
Okay. Uh, like elevated, uh, like suspended, and like that. Honestly, it was when I was a kid, it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. So the initial stuntman they were going to have actually walked off the set because he said this was too dangerous to do. Mm. And the guy that stepped in in his shoes nearly died when one of the motorbikes came off the stunt as they were recording it into him. But they say he was wearing so much padding and so much covering to film the shot that it injured him, but it could have been a lot worse. But they still knuckled down and and, and got it done. Hmm. Ryan Gosling did learn how to ride a bike professionally in this one. He was trained by the guy that had just come off Dark Knight Rises, but yeah. it's not him in this scene, if anyone did wonder. Yeah, I assume that was a stump on the head, I'll be honest. <clears throat> yeah, that would have been very impressive if uh, Gosling, <laughs> Gosling's putting the focus in to do that. Tom Cruise would have done it. <laughs> yeah. So the first part of the film centres on Luke Glanton, Handsome Luke as he's called, maybe my new nickname, a charismatic biker doing a dangerous wall of death stunt at a travelling fair. He's a strutting, chain-smoking, much-tattooed drifter who is transformed by the discovery that he's the father of Jason, the six-month-old son of Romina. Eva Mendes coming into this, the director says he actually met her initially and decided she wasn't a good fit. And it took Ryan Gosling essentially insisting that she was incredibly underrated as an actress and to basically keep auditioning her until she got the role. Eventually she does get it. And I I don't see any issue with her in this film. It's nope. been voted as her best performance of her career. So right choice by Ryan Gosling. They, they do become an item shortly after this. So maybe... <laughs> He uh, he had his own motives. Yeah. But it works out. I thought... Yeah, she's the, very good in this. And I thought the chemistry between them, the second you see them together in the diner, I thought it felt... Well, for a start, they just looked like they matched well together. Yeah. Two very good-looking people, clearly. It's hard to go too wrong there. But everything, the dynamic between them did feel just right. Yeah. Yeah, you, there is, a, there is a, a level of chemistry there. And... We build through this as I think he makes the decision within the first 15 minutes of the film that he's going to stick around and this sets everything in play as we go through. Yeah. There's a moment where Romina asks him, how are you going to pay for your son? And he asks her not to speak down on him. And at that point, I think as an audience, we do just fall for him as a character, like his vulnerability shines through. I think the next scene is in the church at the christening where we focus and we just have this close-up of him at the back with tears running down his face. To be honest, I thought he was a bit of a dick in that bonus scene. Him or her? Yeah, no. When he's, when he's, oh, don't speak down to me. She's not being condescending, she's not being that condescending, if at all. <clears throat> she's making a really, really valid, really, really valid point. Yeah, I think you it's want a sense to, of you pride want to be though, part isn't it? of, it's, it's, yeah, it's got to be a sense of pride from the, from the kid's mum being like, look, you want to be involved? Cool. But come on. Like, how are you going to do that? I, I, like, and he's like, oh, don't speak to that. So, and he, he, I think he says it twice, doesn't he? Well, yeah. Um, he said, I think the way he says it is what gets the audience on side is... Oh, it's the complete... I, see, I thought he was I thought he was being a bit of a dick, to be honest. Well, he, he says it from a... It's all, 
it's almost don't say that out loud. And I get the point you're making and that it's her job to say that also. Yeah. But I do think the point of it, the fact that the camera goes in on him after that and not her tells us who we're supposed to be feeling for in that situation. Mm. I get what you're saying. And you probably, it's supposed you probably to be, isn't it? It's, it's supposed to be the idea essentially in films that look, we could have nothing and all we have is each other. And that's all that we should need. And in reality, yeah. as she's pointing out, it's not that simple. No. she Essentially, the parent who's got some semblance of a fucking idea was the one I was like, yep, fair, fair enough. Well, I thought it was interesting because she actually does have a new, more dependable partner. Yep. And throughout the course of Act 1, he still remains violent. He still remains lawless, which we're going to get into. But in the eyes of the audience, he is redeemed almost. He's accepted. He's the guy we're rooting for. In in the eyes of society and essentially anyone that takes a step back from this, he's trying to assume these fatherly responsibilities when he has he's in no position to be doing so. He doesn't know what he should be doing. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of first-time fathers. But he comes in at a point where if he was to be completely honest, he's better off staying away, as I think she does initially say. Yeah. The director says that he gave the cast members, and Gosling and Mendes, that is, completely opposing direction to try and just coax the conflict naturally out of them. In the scene where Luke is trying to give her money after assaulting her boyfriend, he told Eva Mendes to avoid taking the money at all costs. And yep. the direction he's given Ryan Gosling is to give her the money by any means necessary before she goes off. Yeah. And they shoot several takes of this. And if this was just an accident laden set, she tries, um, he puts his head by the wheel, sorry. Because he steps in front of the car, and that's what we see actually in the film. She gets flustered in the scene and tries to continue her side of things and hits the accelerator and not the brake and nearly runs him over on the set. And so (laughs) it could have been very different. Yeah. She screamed out. He said she was just, (laughs) she was just doing her job. And they continue the take, and he, he throws the money in the back seat. And that's what we see in the final take, but accident hmm. waiting to happen, it seems, on that set. Yeah, confirmed. Well, it sounds as though an accident did had already happened at that point. Yeah. So, something I thought we glossed over is there is clearly something between them by the fact that they're lying together in the trailer. He's yes. just got his hand right around her naked top half for the duration of this scene. We don't ever really mention the fact that something happened between them and she does just go back to uh, not even a bloke on the side, I guess. He was the piece on the side. Yeah. The, the guy who she's later bringing up her kids with. We we just gloss over that. Yeah, it's very, we've gotten about very quickly. She does what she has to do, I guess. Um, the robbing of the banks, the thing that's used in all the marketing, as we've said. Mm-hmm. According to Gosling, all of his bank robbery scenes were done in one take. Yeah. I didn't know how you felt about the actual heist 
that we see because we spoke about the different types, didn't we, when we did Oceans and Den of Thieves? Yeah. This is one of those, like Hell or High Water, I could do that bank heist. Smash and grab, isn't it? Yeah. It, it feels like one that, look, if I'm in that situation, and it's a lot different, it's a lot more difficult now, I, I, I assume, they're the ones that look like you could do that. There's no gadgets involved. There's nothing too excessive. It's a bike and basically just telling people, put the money in the bag and that's it. Yep. Do you like that style of heist and the way it's done in this film? Uh, I like the way it's shot in this. It's quick. There's a lot of low-level shots in it of him strolling around on, on counters, etc. I think it's scored quite well the whole way through. And they almost leave you to it when the heist scenes are taking place, which does just amp up the uh, the angst yeah. that's going right the way through it. We hear him breathing the whole way through. It's shot in real time, as you've just said there. We're with him in every moment that he's in there. And you can feel the time ticking and ticking and ticking. And I guess you're waiting for something to happen right up until the point in which the bike doesn't start right before the final heist. Yeah. Ben yeah, Mendelsohn, sorry. No, no, go on, you carry on. I, I think Ben Mendelssohn is great in this. I wouldn't go as far as to say he steals the film because I don't think the role is big enough. But everything he does in this I thought was so good. I thought it was really good seeing him because he's another one that the director supposedly doubted and Gosling put in a good word for. What did you think of his performance in this? I quite like, I like him in everything I've seen him yeah. in. I can't can't get kill it, uh, killing them soft out of my head whenever I see him, but that's just, it is what it is. This is what uh, Gosling told him to watch, the mm. director to watch before casting him. And I believe when Ray Liotta can come in and say, no, this is, this is a guy you need to get in. That's not yeah. a bad uh, stamp for approval. No, Liot was very good in killing them soft as well. He's also very good in this. Yeah, we're going to get on to him because he he is close to uh, stealing the film territory for me in this. Mendelssohn, I think it was interesting because a lot of the roles he plays, and he's coming off Dark Knight Rises in this, he often plays a character that is quite cunning yeah, or has the tendency... I bet if there was an over-under half of his films, he backstabs someone in. I'd probably take the over. Yeah. And in this, he's actually just a very genuine, sweet character. Like, he invites him to stay with him and offers him a job within about 10 minutes of meeting him. And it never seems to be with ever any ill intention. Breaking up the bikes by a bit of bad crack, though. Yeah, do you not? But isn't the whole point of that that he's worried for him and he's trying to stop him doing something he'll regret? I know, but nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that is, that's, that is his prized possession. He refers to the bike as part of the family at one point. In, the, in literally the scene before. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah so that's, 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 that's not great news. I, I wrote down very few people can pull off the we should rob a bank conversation and sound serious. And Mendelssohn just has it nailed like he's telling him we should go and have a kickabout. Gives him a little backstory though, doesn't he? Telling how he used to get used to be involved, doesn't it? Got yeah. a bit too hot. And he doesn't he doesn't need much more than that. No. Well, desperate times, isn't it? 
Well, so <laughs> I was going to write about this. It is sold as he has no other choice. Now, it would certainly be more difficult. There are other jobs out there. Yeah. It wasn't quite literally like hell or high water. You've got so X many days to get this money or you're going to lose the house. Yeah. This was how you're going to provide for your son. And it was, well, I best, I guess I got to rob a bank. Yeah. And it's not even as though your the thing about that is it's not even as though in this instance, Ryan Gosling's the one putting a roof over his head. No. Marshall Ali's doing that bit. Yeah. So the, the oh. child is safe. This is, this is a, yeah. Ego feels the wrong word, but it is almost that, isn't it? It's well, no, it is. It's, you said it earlier. It's literally just his own pride, unless, yeah. unless his motivation is, which it does seem to be somewhat that if I get to point X, it will all be mine. Like it'll be, it will be an actual family, i.e., as a unit. Well, yeah, because she says in the diner, doesn't she? Well, what's he going to do? And he says, mm. "Go away, get himself a girl, have his own child. That's every man's right." Yeah. And then he's telling her we should go and move away. And she's not as on board with that. And she makes the right decision. She makes the right decision clearly, but. Well, if you'd have made the decision, your man might not have died. Well, is it? These scenes are very good. You know already what's going to happen when it comes to, I'm going to rob two banks in one day. Mm -hmm. That's never been a good idea. That's right on par with, we should split up in yeah. a horror film. But he decides it's a good idea. And if you were going to rob two banks in that method in one day, you'd have to do it simultaneously, wouldn't you? Yeah. Rather than, I, because he says, I'll have the cops and I'll lead them from one to the other and I'll be in and out, essentially. I'll, yeah. Just, just a mental, mental <laughs> turn of events. Yeah. Very, very much an unnecessary risk on his part. Because he also he also already had the money, didn't he? Because he's mm -hmm. tried at that point to put up the crib and he's brought all the possessions around. He could have invested in a place for himself. Well, I guess it might draw attention to himself, but he could have done something a bit more than that. Yeah. And in that moment when he strikes her boyfriend... He's done out here. There's there's no coming back from that. It's just shown her that he is what she thinks he is. Yeah. He's done that in front of the child. Yeah. No coming back. No, I don't think that would have been. When he's dancing with a dog after the first heist is one of my favorite moments in the film. And I thought when I said about Ben Mendelsohn's character, you said about the uh, destroying of the bike. I thought the fact that when his son comes round in part three and he has nothing but glowing words to say about someone whose last time they met, he was putting a gun in his mouth. Yeah. Is again, testament to that character who was really good. The crossover then, the chase with Bradley Cooper getting involved. Good. You enjoyed his chase scene? Yeah, yes, it's, it's, it's not bad. Escaping on a motorbike always feels more dangerous, doesn't it? Because... Yeah, uh, one one wrong move can cost you more. Also, what the one I would always choose to be on if you're on GTA or something. There's just something, there's an extra thrill about going at the top speed on a motorbike there. 
almost everything right in terms of getting away. I don't know why he keeps getting back on the road uh, when he's going through the graveyard. Like he could just cut across and the police car can't do that. But he clearly has a different plan in mind. Gets in the house and at that point, you've just got to get out early. You know the other policeman's there, but you take your chance on a 1v1, don't you? Rather than the longer you wait, you're just toast. Yeah, I get what you mean. Um, Also, The actions from the police once he's fallen out the window, by the way, when they've come around a corner screaming, his head is in like <laughs> his, his head is in about six different pieces, and I feel like they could see that. Yeah, what is uh hands on your hands on your head, do not mm. move, and he's like, What <laughs> he's not moving. Um and we cross over from there, don't we? I think in the moment when Bradley Cooper's being interviewed. You second guess yourself as to, okay, did he fire first? Did he have the gun in his hand? Because it feels in the moment like he didn't need to shoot him. I don't know if that's how you felt. He comes into the room, bloke's got a gun in his hand. He's got to do what he's got to do. Okay. He doesn't need to enter the room, but once he does that, it's all better off. I think as an audience, you're supposed to question whether he needed to do that. They don't want the audience. I doesn't watch as many police shows as I do. When he comes through the door, his arm goes to move, so he shoots him. Simple. I don't think it does if you watch it, but his arms are by his side, and he look and the, he comes in, and the second he gets through the door, it's bang, and he's out the window. He sat there. His arms aren't by his side because he sat in the window. His arms, his arms, his arms are by his lap, like they're down. He's on the phone. But the gun, the gun is on the gun is on his waist. Yeah, uh, so, I, so I think that's I, why he's quizzed about it afterwards. So they, they, they would you wouldn't know that, would you? They would quiz him regardless. Well, they shouldn't. So, they? Yeah, the way he's quizzed is like they have reason to believe he could have maybe avoided it. Yeah, once he enters that room, it's only going to end one way. Yeah, that's Plus, that's fair. Um, Bradley Cooper, then, we, we we come in with him, and I guess if you are going to dispose of Ryan Gosling early... Were you sh- how shocked were you, by the way, if you've not seen this before? Uh, I didn't like it. Was it. Did it shock you? No, not not overly. I just didn't like it. I was annoyed once he had died and it had moved on. I was uh, I was waiting and waiting, sort of waited five, six minutes, and when it was obviously he is dead, it was just... I was, I was disappointed in it. Yeah, I get you. So I get, what I would say is if you are going to move on from Ryan Gosling, I guess Bradley Cooper is probably not a bad backup in terms of you're not going to know one. Bradley Cooper, you already have some kind of level of affinity with just for the films that he's been in previously. Yeah. And the limelight is switched and they both do a lot of soul searching looks throughout this. The director says, he captured what he calls the eternity of every moment. He chose long, lingering shots and documentary-style editing to plunge us into the profoundness of any given scene. So we do get this, and Bradley Cooper does it in a similar way to which Ryan Gosling does. He Avery Cross, a college-educated, uniformed cop, son of a well-respected judge. He too has a small son, 
and he becomes a police hero in somewhat dubious circumstances. Riddled with guilt, he's drawn into a web of corruption and professional intrigue that wraps itself around the local criminal justice system. Could you have envisioned envisioned that this was going to become a like Serpico style police drama for the second act? Uh, no, no, no. I could, wouldn't have wouldn't have guessed that. No, Bradley Cooper. If if we could do something on him, I noted down his emotional range, and he really he finds something around this time in his career. And I think he's so good at the kind of emotional subtleties. The scene at the therapist's office when he's playing the man struggling to find a word for this mixture of emotions that he's going through. I think that's when he's at his best, when he's doing this kind of thing, when he starts kind of half answering the question, what is it you want me to say in the way he does this? And I think when you contrast that to the end of the film, I don't think he does the big emotion as well. Okay. I don't think he sells it as well. So in the moment when he's got a gun pointed at his head, in that earlier scene, you can almost see the cogs ticking in his brain and you're trying to work out how he feels in this situation. In the scene when he's got a gun pointed at his head and he doesn't know if his son's dead, it's almost a bit too much, I thought, with the throwing it in. I didn't. I thought he's... Uh, I don't think he's bad acting. I don't want to put that out there i just think he's so much better when he can leave you to try and work out what he's thinking rather than so plainly tell it on screen okay what do you think about that um i don't know makes a fair point i hadn't really i hadn't sort of thought about it that much which shouldn't surprise you at this stage well at, at this time, I said to you yesterday, it feels to me the cast is one where they maybe thought you could look back on this. And I think we spoke about Oceans aging wonderfully well, where even this, the secondary stars grew to a level where that looks even more star-studded when you look back. Mm-hmm. I think the Goonies is one that's always pointed to in these child stars. And you look down the list now and it's just aged wonderfully. With this, you've got these a lot of actors that are kind of in the middle of being given a push. They're in that stage when they're right trying to drive through it. Rose Byrne, who I think is very good in a small role in this, is fresh off the back of Insidious and Bridesmaids, which yeah. were both huge. Yeah. Both of them in completely different genres as well. And she does Bad Neighbours less than 18 months after this. So she's clearly on the way up and I'm not going to say they're trying to make her a thing like it didn't work, but I think there's definitely a focus in there pushing her towards being a leading lady in this. Yeah. And that scene at the dinner table in the second act, you don't strike me as a reality TV person. Well, I don't know if you've ever watched something like reality TV or something of that nature where you almost find that you can't look at the screen, whether it's just awkwardness, whether it's just cringe. And when she's being sarcastic in this, 
and they're picking up on it. It's perfectly done. It's hard to get through when she said, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a real hero. And I think it's Liotta at that point says, do I detect some sarcasm in there? Mm. And they got this back and forth going. I think she's really good, even at you just seeing the cracks forming before when it comes to the third act and they're no longer together. That's completely believable just from what you've seen in her small role in the second part. Yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. They they seem very good, obviously, at a lot of odds. Even when they're in bed together and stuff, there's there's something there. Gosling has just done Drive. He's just done Crazy Stupid Love, which we're going to get you to watch at some point. Um, And he's about to do Gangster Squad. So you can see there we're right in prime Gosling territory. I actually saw a article from The Ringer just after this point in which they say that Ryan Gosling hasn't done a bad film in however many years. And they, they say a whole thing on him doing a no-hitter. Only God forgives I would point them to, but they gloss over that. So but there we go. Ryan Gosling is in his main man before he takes a break, which we covered previously. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's on a very good run here. Yeah. Yes. Can't do anything but help him, basically. Yeah. Ben Mendelsohn is just off Dark Knight Rises, and he's actually doing interviews at the time of how Fantastic Four is due to be rebooted, and he's campaigning to play Doctor Doom. He would have made a call, Doctor Doom. Yeah, so we still don't know who's going to play the new Doctor Doom, which is being rebooted, so maybe he should put his name back in the hat, because I, I saw that, and I thought, that's actually a really cool idea. Yeah. As a complete side note, I really hope they... I just wish they wouldn't fucking reboot this. You've tried twice. No, I hope they do because it's my favourite comic book series within Marvel and it's entirely because of Doctor Doom. But then my worry is, right, they've tried this. They've tried this twice with big cast both times and it has just not worked. I think they get the third pass because they haven't done it within the MCU and so... Up to now, actually, the standards have always been that their bad is still a good for everyone else. That's faded away. But I have to trust that they can uh, find the magic there again. Um, look, soft spot for the early ones. Jessica Alba is... Uh... I, I have to... I watched them both when they came out originally, and I don't... I Obviously, film tastes were different, but I actually yeah. quite like them. Everyone loved a bit of Silver Surfer, didn't they, at the time? Yeah. Yeah, I actually don't mind that at all either. Um, Bradley Cooper's last three major films prior to this are Hangover 2, Limitless, and The A-Team. He then does Silver Linings Playbook, which is huge and taps into entirely what I said with um, his emotional subtleties. And Hangover, and Hangover 3. So he's living he's living life at this point. Yeah, um, uh... They all, got, they, all, they all now openly admitted that Hangover Freezer was just yeah. a cash grab, so I'll forgive them. And then after that, we've got what, like American Hustle, and we keep going. So, And then Guardians of the Galaxy. The the age of Bradley Cooper is still ongoing. It is, yeah. I can, I can never still still struggle to believe that they got him to play, they got yeah. him to play the <laughs> part that they did in that. I know. And the one that... I thought was the biggest example of this whole point, And it, I kind of started here and worked backwards is um, Dane DeHaan, who you may not know I'm referring to. 
he's okay. the guy that plays Jason in the third act. Yeah. He does Chronicle and Lawless all, and A Place Beyond the Pines all in 2012. I don't know what Chronicle is. So Chronicle, good thing Sean hasn't heard you say that. It was, we were right, we were exiting the found footage stage and it was an in-between. So do you remember there was this phase and we've continued it with the boys, but it was the what if all superheroes weren't super kind of thing. And they get these powers and they discover them and you can be corrupted and he's got an abusive dad and it's, look, if I have these powers, the powers that we see in comic books aren't always going to go to a good guy. And it's kind of that thing. Uh, Michael B. Jordan's in it before he blows up as well. It's, It's a fun hour and a half. I don't know how well it will have aged from 2012 is why I don't really want to go back to it. Okay, fair enough. But he plays cricket in Lawless. Yeah. Uh, he then gets cast as the Green Goblin after this film. And they were really pushing that, and then we don't get The Amazing Spider-Man 3 because of the fallout with Andrew Garfield and Sony. Yeah. So that's obviously huge for him to be in that. And I don't know if you remember the campaign. There was a film called A Cure for Wellness, no. which I never watched, but it was one of these films of... Um, a doctor goes to visit a psychiatric facility and then what happens if you get trapped on the inside? And we've seen this film done however many times, but he's actually the only star listed on the poster for that film. And it was a big budget film. So you can see that he was on the way up after this. So I thought it was very interesting that this cast, you text me, I think after seeing the initial credits, like some cast in this, Mm, yeah, yeah, uh, literally, as I was, as I was reading names, and then I've not even mentioned that we've got Rayleigh Otter in this, and you can go further down the list. Yeah, the whole plot of this, and you, this continues within the second act, is a very realistic plot. Like all of these things could have happened; it could very much go from one to the next. Essentially, two fathers and their sons, and that's just what goes through the entire film and then various decisions involving money, careers and families, which game of life that is there, isn't it? Yeah. Ray Liotta, if we can talk about him, what do you think about this storyline? First of all, very, I guess it's probably fair to say it's a very played out storyline. I wonder how you think. Policeman. Yeah. Yeah. I love it almost every time. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you think they they did in this sh- relatively short sequence? I think they did quite a good job of it. It's very realistic that look, this is this is how we're going to do it. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to continue doing it. Then gets the money, gives him the money, try and get him on side. Then he asks him for a favor, bring her closer into the fold. And uh, it turns out that the person, it t- turns out that the person who's blowing the whistle isn't doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it for their own ends. That is what yeah. I assume happens. That, the, the sequence you get almost every time of the guy that goes to report the crime and he's made this huge, brave decision. And then the police chief's like, oh, what the fuck do you expect me to do with this? I don't want to know this. Every yeah. single time leaves you like, no, no, you can't believe it in the moment. 
despite the fact we've seen it done several times before, but I think it's done. I think it's done well in this. The police chief is um, perfectly dislikable. Plays a really good cop at that bloke. He's a cop yeah. at a couple of things. Um, having seen the film before, I remembered how tense I felt throughout. Ray Liotta in this, I messaged you, I messaged Chike. I genuinely think he's terrifying in this, in the short role that he has. He's just so unnerving anytime he's on the screen. And even in a, in a moment in which it's daylight, I mean, the sun's just going to go down after he's blown the whistle and he's pulled over by Liotta and he walks slowly up to the car and he just looks in the window and you're just waiting for him to hit him, shoot him, I'll do something. Yeah, even then he just taps him on the chest, doesn't he? It's like, this bloke is horrified. Yeah, I thought he was going to shoot him. And he, he doesn't he doesn't need to do too much, does he, throughout throughout his role? For one, it's we look at him and that's Ray Liotta. But just the way he walks, the way he squints at him, I think he's just perfect in this. You know my feelings already, Ray Liotta, mate? Yeah. And it, I mean, it's sad. To, it's sad to say that every time I see him now, it 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 does hit that bit differently. Mm, it does, yeah. And I mean, it's not like we were ever going to be able to tell him. By the way, loved your performance in Goodfellas, but you almost feel like you you wish now, as we always hear, you could give these people their flowers when they're around because in this, when he's been doing it for so long to still put in a performance like this in a film where he has such a small role. Yeah, I know he made he, he, there were some mistakes, made some missed opportunities, etc. But I think phenomenal, I just think he's a phenomenal actor, man. Like you said, I think for a long time he probably didn't after Goodfellas, whatever the whatever the crap was, he he didn't I think for a long time he didn't quite get that. And he wasn't seen as that, but I just think what a just great performances along the way do you think and I imagine if someone had asked him he would have been quite honest about it do you think it was weird for him seeing the direction De Niro goes post Goodfellas and he obviously doesn't have a bad time but he isn't De Niro afterwards I don't think so I think he's he's older than me I mean I mean he does he does do I mean he does make a couple of bangers mate yeah yeah for sure it's not like he falls off he makes them bad granted but I think at one point he just openly admitted he was, I'll take a paycheck. Yeah. Oh, no issue with that. De Niro did the same. De Niro did the same. No, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Oh, I meant, no, I meant Liotta. Um, I meant, so when I said the direction, De Niro just keeps going up and up and up and he's like the biggest movie star in the world. Yeah, sorry, that's what I thought you meant. I thought you said, did you think... The way I, you I wondered, the so I wondered if you thought Liotta would have had any kind of jealousy... Oh, sorry. Yeah, or no, if it would have been a, if if it would have been a, a respectful, fair play, or if it would have been a that could have been me. I think it would have been respectful. It couldn't have been in though. That's not in a horrible way, but no, I know what you mean. De Niro was had already been yeah yeah the number one films like the the biggest movie star in the world, and he just sort of he, maybe I mean he's only four years between Good Rate but Raging Bull and Goodfellas. Mm. Uh, I mean, so it's. He never really. He, it's only when it hits about two thousand that he sort of like he, he falls away. So, 
you said about the motives for Avery in this. And I guess for a while, even we don't know. And then it does become clear, as you've said, that he's got this kind of confused combination of ambition, honesty, and guilt. I don't think he's that that confused. Well, I think there's a stage in which he's getting all this um, adoration and he's being told constantly, you did the right thing. He's second guessing, as we see right through to the end, that he doesn't believe he did the right thing. Or he at least wishes he could have handled it differently due to the fact that he's left a son behind. Um, And because of that, he's got his dad in the background and he can see how successful he is. He's constantly leaning on his dad for advice and he's trying to reach that those kind of levels. I thought there was quite a switch up in from what I'd seen from the character early on in that sequence for him to then switch up and be like, I want this, I want this and I want this promotion and I'll be going over to the newspaper if you don't give it to me. I personally didn't see the character going that way until he did. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of chats with his dad before that about sort of speeches and being a politician and this, that and the other. Um, yeah, I, I, no, I, I'm not sure I saw it coming, but in terms he, of... He didn't feel as snide until that point. When he's in there, it feels very, very smug when he's doing, he's making a decision that should be, he's selling it as I have to do the right thing. And as you pointed out, he's doing it more than just because it's the right thing. Yeah, most definitely. Like I say, it's it's just it turns out that it's solely it's, it's I think it's actually just done for his ambition more than anything else. And now that we come to the end of this um sequence, how much of a come down was part two for you? Like if you told me that part one was your favourite part of the film, so what level did you find the drop off? Um, I don't want to say significant, but yes, I wasn't as engaged. So there's Um, some people that say, look, I watched part one, Ryan Gosling died. That was me tuned out. Didn't need to see any more. Was like, would it, if it was a a one to 10 scale to what level you dropped, would it be less than five, more than five? No, it's probably about an eight to a five in fairness. What in terms of how much your interest dropped? A little bit, yeah. Uh, or yeah, and how entertaining I found it. Like there are moments, which is why. So by an eight, I mean that's like your interest is almost completely gone. You what? By it dropping eight tiers, I you mean your interest was like a two out of ten for the second part? No, no, an eight to a five. Okay, okay, uh, yeah. That's what I said. We're the other way. Our scales are the other way around. Right, okay, no, I was thinking a 10 out of 10 is at the top of my interest. One out of 10 is none. Okay, that's, I was quite shook considering the conversation we just had, which is why I was confused. Yeah, um, no, you know, I went from, I really, I really, really like the first part. I like the second part. I don't mind it, but I find it harder to engage with. I was more engaged with the story than the characters, which when it's quite a dialogue laden 40 minutes, yeah, presents its problems. Did you, um, 
Did you feel that you were rooting for anyone in the second part or you were just following along what happened? Radio. So in the moment when Bradley Cooper's being led and he he takes an alarmingly long time to realise why he's being led where he's being led. Mm. In in that moment, I didn't feel like I was necessarily rooting for Bradley Cooper, but I did find myself worried for his safety in that moment. No, I wasn't rooting for him. I, I don't, not overly anyway. Um, and in fairness to that as a character, my level of affection for him actually goes even further away in the third act sort of thing. Yeah, let's um, let's go into the third act where I have less to kind of break down and more about the way that it's done. So we leap forward 15 years. By then, Avery's broken up with his wife. He's moved into his father's mansion and he's running for the high office of attorney general of New York. The focus shifts again and this time the main characters are Luke's son Jason and Avery's son AJ. Now my memory of the film and so I it was different for me when I was looking back I remembered he didn't know we didn't know that it was Luke's son until he's at the party and we see the picture on the wall yeah and everything kind of clicks and then we see basically it's broken down um so no sorry we knew it's his son i didn't know that was who um aj was i didn't know who his dad was so it was that way around and then we see the picture on the wall yeah um so it was you've seen wait you sure i had i was my memory of it was 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 more of a shock in that moment i'm sure cooper grips him up in the jail cell before then yeah yeah my memory that when i so I, i haven't watched it since 2012 Okay, sorry, yeah, I'm with you. Um, yeah, this this is, objectively speaking, the, the least interesting and I would say the least convincing part of the story. I think it's in there because it's clearly very significant to the director and their yep. writers in the way that it draws together all of the themes they're trying to hit hit home on and masculinity fatherhood responsibility and i guess um like the inherited way of life yeah yeah um, the, yeah i go on sorry i saw um it described as the director building up a sense of tragic necessity which i thought was really interesting um tragic necessity what in terms of that third act or yeah in terms of us getting to this point in that we kind of know there can't be a happy ending here we know that certain things have to happen and it's just the build up to that point despite the fact that we know it's it's not going to be a happy ending for any of the characters if you didn't want there to be a happy ending in that point no, yeah, you, you you always know something's going to go wrong. I mean, in fairness, again, in this, I think you, your 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 affection switches back towards Jason, and he doesn't have the worst time. He, once he gets through it a little bit, he doesn't have the worst time in the world. So, say so the the director said the world of the place beyond the pines 
it's you have to make your mind up as to whether the characters ultimately are helpless. They're thrown into this dark mechanized course that's laid out from them just because of what their dads did 20 years ago, or if they could have escaped this path. And we do see several times there's a shot in which there's two different ways to go, whether it's Avery and he's following Rayleigh Otter and they actually follow his eyesight and he's looking backwards. Do I get out of here? Okay. Do I keep following the car? There's Jason on the bike and you see the road trailing two ways and it's okay. Do I keep going down this path or do I follow my dad's footsteps and so on? And I do think they hinted that then the whole way through the father son bond is it's not one like fight club where we did it and it was okay did you take this from it did you take this from it some people say this is the major theme it's a pretty inescapable and it's right in front of your face from i mean it's the entire reason the storyline exists and you yeah. can see the differences in cooper's success in the or Avery's success in the police department is entirely owed to his own father's insight. He steers in the right way the whole way through. Whereas both of the sons by the third act are completely unable to rely on their dad's advice. And so they make their own mistakes and they're unable to correct them in the same way because they don't have anyone points them in the right direction. Even if there is some goodwill involved. Right at the start of the film, Ryan Gosling's character mentions that he has to be in his son's life so that his son doesn't end up like him. And that leads us to the point in which he gets on the motorbike at the end and he goes on his own way. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I wasn't sure about that, that at the end, and I've got a little bit... Um, well, I'll ask you about that in a second, because Avery's lack of concern about his son in the scene where Jason has come into their house is, I guess, just supposed to reflect on the lack of connection they have. He doesn't ask about him until the very end, shows how self-centered he is and how little he cares for him. Luke, you could say, abandons his morality because the only thing that now matters to him is his newly discovered son. And he's trying to do everything he can to provide that. Avery clings on to any morality he does have entirely to save his own reputation. And in the process, he disregards his son. And I think that's supposed to be the point that you take by the end of it is that they're two very different people, but ultimately they've both found themselves in pretty uncomfortable situations because of the things their dads did to each other. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's sins of the father, though, isn't it? Yeah, and we are, we're left to decide whether that fate was fixed the whole way through or if their desires, their freedoms, etc., they could have gone their own way. I yeah. think in terms of how the film's shot, I don't think it ever rises past uh, the first sequence. No, when, when it involves Gosling and his bike, it's like it's, it's beautiful. Some of the scenery, it's the kind of thing you would see in a review. Visceral would be used in almost every single one of them. 
just when he's escaping on the bike from the bank and they take all the music away and you can hear every rev of the engine and everything driving home. I think when we see him going through the woods and it's all choppy, the sit the shots of New York in the evening at dusk when he's going through after the diner, even just the shot in which they're having the photograph taken and his character says, try to get the complete mood of this place or something like that. I don't think the film ever looks better than it does at that stage of the film, but I do still think it's nicely shot the whole way through. It feels like a stylish kind of film. Yes, it does. Yeah, I mean, I do like the way it's shot. Um, I do do like a lot of the way it's shot. Do you think if you saw some more work by the director, you could probably point and say that it feels similar to this? Because I think there's a lot here that you could take away and see that it probably is something quite individual to the director. Um, yes, yeah, and like you said, it seems to have been formed by his opinion of his other films. Yeah. Sort of the one review I didn't take down, actually save for now, I saw it said, a family drama that uses the crimes as a plot device, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they definitely are secondary, aren't they? They're yeah. not. It's not even that. It's not that there's a load of them fired or anything. No. And then, just finally, you, you mentioned it before, what were your thoughts on the ending? We end it with another young man, another motorbike, racing away, trying to avoid his fate. I guess unaware of where the path that he's taking is is going to lead to. Yeah. It's done really nicely. We know the tag of the film is the place beyond the pines and we see him going to beyond that place. Point. Yeah. Yeah, it was a nice touch that. Do you think they could have ended it any differently, really? Um, if you were going to change, I'll ask you an answer to the question, but if you were going to change it, what part would you change? I... I don't know, because I don't think it works if he kills Bradley Cooper in that moment. I don't no. think if Bradley Cooper is suddenly a changed man... I don't think that works. I think the point they're trying to give you is that he's attached it to being this almost, this person that's done nothing more than kill his dad and it was nothing to him. He was just a guy that did this. And the second he acknowledges his name and any kind of emotion towards that moment, that was seemingly enough for him to be able to set free. I think... The whole point of the film as it goes through is driving these messages. And so I think right from the start, it can only really end one way if you're aware of all the characters involved. So I don't really think they could have done anything else because you then have to change the rest of the film and the journey they go on to make it make sense. Yeah, no, exactly. And then I think we've we've done quite a lot of films recently, haven't we, where the ending we've said each time it's not unsatisfactory, but, and it's kind of a nothing ending. Like we, we didn't tie necessarily tie everything up. And I think this is one of those again, and it's just one that's framed a bit nicer. And 
we don't necessarily have the attachment to these characters where I need to know what happened to him. And he's not in a situation where we need to know, did he live? Did he die? Did he do this? So we're quite happy to just imagine he's gone his way. He's gone his way. And yeah, we take, yeah. take I don't think he needs, the thing is they are so secondary. It's obviously a nice way to tie it together that now we're both older, but I don't think they actually, I don't think either of their storylines really bring too much to it. No. Um, anyway let's get on to our second film of the day and that is taxi driver talking to me when a man on the edge well i'm the only one here meets a girl on the game and a pimp on the make the scene is set for the most explosive showdown in modern cinema history Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese's apocalyptic masterpiece. Got some bad ideas in my head. Bank Holiday Monday at 10.30 on BBC Two. Shite trailer, isn't it? Where where the fuck did you pull that from? YouTube is literally the only TV trailer I could find. I I take the TV spots so we're not sat here for two minutes and I don't get a copyright strike. Okay, fair enough. Something I would say, actually... um, Someone has recreated the Joker trailer, but entirely with shots of De Niro in Taxi Driver. And I know we spoke that there were comparisons at the time, and it's really, really well done. Is it? So Yeah. So it's something just a little, like, one minute 20 to take a look at, but it's it's quite cool. Would you send it to me? Yeah, I will do. I may put it in the description of this episode as well. So. A mentally unstable veteran works as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City, where the perceived decadence and sleaze fuels his urge for violent action. This was your first time watching this as well, I believe, so it was a double whammy of new films for you. It was, it was. What do you think the critics think of this? Uh, I mean, didn't this win Oscars and shit? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of I'll, criticisms for the ending, but overall, people are like, eh, good. I'll cut you some slack here, which you may think is... Um, a rarity? Yeah. Mm. I've obviously done the podcast with two different people the last two weeks. Yeah. Each time, as I always ask Keenan, what do you think the critics thought of this? Yeah. They may have both struggled more. And I've always thought it was a fairly straightforward question, but it seems it seems it's not. I was the one in the wrong, it, uh, it appears. I'm surprised my runner. But the critics' reviews. No other film has ever dramatised urban indifference so powerfully. At first here, it's horrifyingly funny, and then just horrifying. Martin Scorsese's unflinching plunge into the darkest recesses of the human soul feels painfully relevant. If Travis is a contradiction, then so is the Vietnam-era United States in which he walks and drives, a schizophrenic environment where violence is always bubbling beneath the surface of dignity, decency, and democracy. A masterpiece, perhaps the masterpiece of American loneliness, a portrait of a psycho as a young man. Scorsese's interest in raging bulls and New York City wolves would return, but his fifth feature remains his magnum opus. 
Still disagree. I disagree with that statement. As do I. And finally, what strikes you aren't just the iconic moments, but the little ones. Yeah, fair point. I was reading into the context of this film, and I won't give all my thoughts on it just yet, but necessarily to say, why is this film as loved as it is? And I took this down, which may be of interest. So Martin Scorsese Taxi Driver was released in 1976 after the end of the Vietnam War. This was a time when America was rethinking the posters on its cultural wall. The massacre at My Lai by American troops had been made public years earlier in 1969. Many citizens felt disillusioned with the idea of America as the ubiquitous good guy. Perhaps Americans thought the classic Western hero wasn't the cool, fast-shooting noble character who always wins. Maybe he's just a misguided misguided sociopath. Taxi Driver puts this idea neatly into perspective. So I wouldn't have given it any of that background. And having read that, it did make a lot more sense to me. Uh... I'm not sure it does, mate. It explains the character of Travis Bickle a lot more to me because I remember watching it the first time around and feeling it was all right. Like It wasn't one of the greatest films ever made. It wasn't a film that I would have gone out. The first time I saw Scarface... I told everyone I knew that hadn't seen Scarface, you need to go and watch Scarface. Yeah. I didn't finish Taxi Driver, very different type of film. And I didn't have that urge to see. Have you, I didn't go to my dad and go, I just watched Taxi Driver for the first time. And I needed a bit more clarity to, I guess, how people were feeling about Travis Bickle at the time to try and put myself in those shoes and, the reading I've done this week has explained some things to me. My my thoughts on the film are still somewhere in the middle. But let's get into the making of it. The preparation De Niro goes through for this, it's acknowledged as one of the first times, at least within the media, we knew about some of the lengths that high-profile actors were going to to get into character. De Niro worked 15-hour days for a month driving cabs as preparation for this role. He also studied mental illness, and during his off time, when filming 1900, he visited a U.S. Army base in northern Italy and tape-recorded conversations with Midwestern soldiers so that he could pick up their accent. Mm-hmm. No one else was doing it like this. No, no. No. I mean, there's no, there, there's no need for him to be driving a, a taxi for 15 hours, man. He says that despite having won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two, he was still a relatively unfamiliar face and was yeah. only recognised once while driving a New York cab during his research for the film. Yeah, I can well believe it. That one person said, didn't you just win an Oscar? Is getting work that hard? <laughs> nice, nice chat, that. And it's just... <laughs> I bet there's so many people afterwards that claimed they yeah. were in one of De Niro's taxis. Yeah. 
15 hour days for a month, I assume he, he picked up. <laughs> um, between the time he'd signed a $35,000 contract to appear in this film and when it began filming, he had won an Oscar in the meantime and his profile had gone up. The producers were worried that De Niro would ask for a deservedly large pay raise. But at that time, Columbia Pictures were actually quite concerned about the project. They weren't sure how it was going to be received. They weren't sure if it was going to make money. And they say they were actually looking for excuses to pull the plug on it. Hmm. De Niro said he was a man of honour. He would stick to his original deal. And so the film gets made. Fair enough. Strikes me as a good guy, Bobby Duff. Yeah. Jodie Foster was 12 years old when the movie was filmed, and I've got something some things on her preparation, but she couldn't do the more explicit scenes in the film. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Uh, her older sister, who was 19 when the film was produced, was cast as her body double, so oh. managed to get her some work in the meantime as well. Yeah, that's what I saw. Um, in terms of her preparation... Can I, no, I'll, I'll ask you about that in about two minutes. All right. I was going to tell you something. But no, gonna... no, because I want to talk about Travis first because there's a larger discussion to be had on, on her character. What were your initial thoughts on Travis Bickle? Uh, the first thing we see of him actually is him trying to get a job. Yeah. What, what did you think? What did you make of his character in that moment? very hard to it's very hard to answer that question yeah. not for anything that happens in the film but Travis Bickle is a, is, well, I mean most people would recognise who that is very so it's, you already know what it becomes yeah yeah I get you without having seen it so it's very difficult I mean if you if you actually objectively watching that for the first time you didn't know anything about the film not that old no He's a little bit. He's a little bit nervous. Maybe a little bit neurotic. He says he's struggling to sleep and stuff. But it's not that odd. I thought he came across as slightly slow. Yeah, and a little bit shifty and a little bit nervous. He's not. You know, it doesn't scream sociopathic justice, no, does it? I wrote down that there's some underlying charm to what he's doing. He's got the jokes. How's your driving record? Clean, real clean, like my conscience. And he's got a couple of these little quirks that come through early on. As you say, you certainly know where it's going, but you don't quite know how we're going to get there yet. It you wouldn't and you wouldn't assume that no one great thing happens to him to kind of turn him you would assume something needs to happen for this switch to kind of flick. Yeah. And that's not how it goes. So Jodie Foster, if I go back to you on here, what were you going to say? No, I don't All right, I'll lead us in then. So some critics understandably showed concern over her presence during the climactic shootout. Mm-hmm. She says that she was present during the setup. She was present during the staging of the special effects used during the scene and that the entire process was explained and demonstrated for her step by step. She actually says that she was fascinated and entertained by the behind the scenes preparation that went into it. And before being given the part, 
she was subjected to psychological testing. She had to attend sessions with a UCLA psychiatrist to ensure that she'd not be emotionally scarred by the role. She says years later, she confessed how uncomfortable the treatment of her character was on set. Not for her, but she says, Scorsese just had no clue how to approach different scenes with her. And he didn't know how he could give her direction. So he basically relied on De Niro to deliver the directions for him. because It was easy to pass on. And he thought that De Niro had less trouble doing it. Jodie Foster says now, De Niro in those moments became a mentor to her and that her acting career that she goes on to have is almost entirely influenced by the advice that she was given during filming. Not bad advice, mate. She's born in Oscar as well. It's insane. Imagine, well, she says that De Niro would just constantly phone her up and suggest they have coffee together to rehearse the dynasty that they have to the point where she's incredibly bored. She's 12 years old and De Niro is just going, we need to do this again. We need to do this again. We need to do this again. And we've heard plenty of times, haven't we, about his methods and his attention to detail as we've already done. But yeah, it does show, I guess that he's unwavering in that, that he's treating a a 12-year-old in the same way that he treats a 42-year-old man because the job's the job and he's going to ensure he gets it done. Well, yeah, exactly that. Um, and I mean, it probably paid some form of dividend, didn't it? Yeah. So, something that didn't read so well, I'm not sure where the checks were at this stage. So in the diner scene, Iris adds sugar to her toast, which is already covered in jam. Yeah. And they say some viewers interpret this as her still being a kid at heart. She explained this wasn't the intention. Um the other hooker who walks the streets with Iris in the film actually worked as a hooker in real life. And Jodie Foster shadowed her to prepare for the role. God, I hope in not great detail. It says she was also a heroin addict. And one way in which she would, she would quell her addiction was to add extra sugar to her meals. Mm. Jodie being very young, but observant incorporated this character trait into the scene, not necessarily understanding the reasons yeah. she was doing it. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, God, I, 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 that, that, <laughs> I don't really know what to say about that. No, I don't. So I read that and I didn't really know how to take it. Um, different. It, like, I know it's, it's never Foster, said about anything good, but it was a different time. Well, Jodie Foster's been particularly open in the process that she went through and she's not disclosed anything out out of the ordinary odd. She's not yeah. disclosed anything in particular that we should be alarmed about. There, there, she doesn't actually like talking about the film now because there was a thing with um, yeah, John Hinckley. No, he got released in April. I didn't know that, no. Yeah, he got released oh, it's horrible April. for her, that. Yeah, I imagine so, but... Yeah, it was an re- uh, unconditional release. He was finally let go. Because the whole they thing is... Finally. I mean, he did try and kill someone. Yeah, a president. Yeah. Because <laughs> the whole thing is, he was actually obsessed with her, wasn't he? He'd watched the film yeah. so many times that he was obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. And so when yeah, they say was. the film inspired his actions, 
he's doing that because he thinks it's going to impress Jodie Foster and make her notice him. Yeah. I know she's a lot older, but it's, I mean, that'd be pretty unsettling. Yeah. It's also, um, like, when he tries to kill Reagan, I think it's like 81 or 82. 81. She's, she's still a child at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. And he's doing it to impress it. what is imaginably in his mind a 12 year old. Well, it's, you can, you can watch it. You can watch on YouTube one of the prominent American talk show hosts, and the name escapes me. He he was interviewing all of the cast on one of the early anniversaries of the film, mm-hmm. and he's asking them all about the film. And then it it gets to Jodie Foster, and he's he's really putting her on the spot about Hinckley, mm. and she's clearly very uncomfortable. And he he keeps driving at it. It's it's a horrible watch. And you could tell me the name now, it probably wouldn't ring a bell to me, but it's one of the main one of the main guys. I'd probably know it. I'd probably know if I like if I saw it, but Yeah, could, you could say it to me now and I wouldn't click which one of them it was, but No, I don't know. Yeah. Rough. Um Scorsese said that he offered the role of Travis Bickle to Dustin Hoffman, who turned it down because he thought Scorsese was crazy and the film would never work. Could have done it. Glad he didn't, but he could have done it. And you mentioned uh, the Times. Producer Julia Phillips says Martin Scorsese cast Sybil Shepherd as Betsy because of the size of her buttocks. She, I mean, she is essentially in the film to look good. I mean, she has to deliver some level of performance in there because she has to have some level of chemistry with Travis. I don't remember any shots of them zooming in on cheeks. No, I don't, don't think it would be that overt, but she is essentially there to look good. Like, I'm not, and I'm she not, does look good. She does. I don't mean that to downplay her performance because actually she, she's very, very good in it, but overall that's what she's there for. Well, the whole point, that becomes the driving force of it. In terms of other cosmetics, um, De Niro's mohawk unfortunately wasn't real um, due to the fact he still had to shoot scenes for the film with hair after those portions. Yeah. Um, they made a mohawk out of thick horse hair and then would glue the cap to his head. Horrendous dude, by the way. You can find the hairpiece on display in the Museum of Moving Image in Astoria, New York. Yeah, it's a shocking hairdo. So... If we could talk about the motivations that Travis has, heroism seems to be at the core of his fantasies right from the start, but it's not on the outside. It's not what he believes it to be. Like He tries saving Betsy from her co-worker, ranting that he's no good for her. And when he doesn't have his weapons, he actually does have the chance to be heroic and save Iris when she flees to his car, but he stays yeah. silent and is paid for doing so. Yeah. As I referenced, there isn't really one single dramatic turning point in which we see him snap into violent behavior. No. He, if anything, he just becomes more comfortable with the thoughts inside his head. Yeah, he just he accepts who he is. The soundtrack, this kind of jazzy saxophone that we get at least early on, 
does distort your perception of him because it almost builds him as a romantic or at least smooth in some regard. I disagree. Do you not think that's the point of the saxophone early on? No, no, I don't know. I, I think it's it it almost as a it's almost contrary to what he is. He is never he's never anything but awkward. The diner scenes with the other cabbies, the scenes in the in the shop, that's when he goes to the cinema, him fucking just chilling out watching pornos, which is wild. <laughs> right. I know they were apparently a big thing in New York in the seventies, but you'll never tell me that that's just not wild. Um he's never anything but awkward. I think I honestly for all the thoughts in his head, if he was socially accept if he was socially better, um I, I doubt he becomes the answer. He becomes the answer hero, or beca- be- becomes what he is. Um, he's almost pushed, and I'm not. He's almost to to, to marginalisation. Well, Scorsese says the most important shot that you should take in in the entire film is when he's on the phone trying to get another date with Betsy. He says the camera moves to the side slowly and pans down the long empty hallway, as if to suggest that the phone conversation is too painful and pathetic for us to hear. It also showcases isolation and loneliness. Yeah, he's almost pushed to the side. Granted, some of some of which is by his own hand, but he's just it's, he's always awkward. Well, in terms of his motivations, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He he has this conversation with the politician, in which. In terms of how intelligent he is, do you think he knows he's being spoken down to in that scene? Yes, because of the way it ends. At what point do you think he realises? Because he still carries on and he has the rant, or do you think it's after the rant that he realises? I think it's after. The city here is an open sewer, and it's the point he swears, doesn't he? Yeah. He should flush it down the fucking toilet, and then he catches himself in what he said. Yeah. Um, yes, I do, do. I do think he does realise, which is why I think part of his fascination turns towards said politician because he sees the that sees that guy. I can never, can't remember his name, but it sees him as not Palatine, not, not willing or not worthy of doing what he feels is necessary. It's almost like he gets his uh, shame out of the way, and then he's he's freed by it. He's been rejected by this guy that he tries impressing. Mm-hmm. He's rejected by Betsy. And then he just becomes exactly what he feels he should be. The scenes of him trying to date Betsy, he says, I first saw her at Palantine Campaign headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel. Out of this filthy mess, she is alone. They cannot touch her. So we start to get an understanding of who he is if we weren't aware already. But I thought, what makes this such a great psychological um, film is that I think the less you know about it, the more it hits, obviously. And I think particularly as a first-time viewer, because I, I knew almost nothing about it other than the one shot of him covered in blood. Mm. 
I think our thoughts on him are supposed to be similar to Betsy when they have their first date. Like on the surface, there's something. She's very timid with him because he has been quite literally a stalker early on, but he does still maintain a hint of charm or at least something that she feels is worth getting to know. She doesn't write him off completely. Which is just such a fucking weird, weird point position for her to take. And then as the date progresses, his, I guess, sorry, his, his disconnection with with any other human just becomes apparent. He's not aggressive. He's not even as defensive as he probably should be. He's just unaware of the social cues. I mean, yeah. When he's telling her, I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot and I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. All these phones on your desk, it means nothing. I saw in your eyes, I saw the way you carried yourself. You're not a happy person. I think you need something. That's such a bizarre... If they'd been on five dates, that would be a weird thing to be coming out with. Yeah. And so we realise even quicker there's something more wrong with him than we thought. But even at that point, we still... I think the director's trying to tell us his heart is still in the right place. He just hasn't figured out how to connect with people. Yeah, that's what I mean. He's awkward. And then we see the location of the date. Yeah, not ideal. Not going to lie to you. Wild. Yeah. (laughs) At the point at which she says, oh, this isn't one of those theatres, is it? And he's like, no, 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 come on. I'm not. There's nothing, nothing like that. I don't know what he thinks is going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Mm. Someone must have made some crossover somewhere where Jack Nicholson in The Departed is in that cinema. There must be some <laughs> crossover someone's made there. Um, yeah, this goes wrong. She storms out. Even then, from what we see at the end, he's kind of trying to stop her, but he's... He's delicately doing it, isn't he? He's putting his arm out, but he's not really stopping her going anywhere. Yeah. He allows her to get in the taxi. He sees her away. He doesn't go into her office. He continues to phone her. And then it's only at the point when she stops answering his calls after she's at first answered when he marches into her her office. And maybe my favorite moment in the film when he's being escorted out and he goes into his karate stance. Mm Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, it is. It was. It's all down to his own awkwardness, and that's. I mean, that's that when he when she bombs him. That's probably as close to a turning point as you get. In, yeah. Why um, did she ever entertain him in the first place? I don't know. That's what I'm saying, Joe. It's weird that she takes this up because he has, like you said, he literally stalks her. She even says at one point, can you see that over there? That bloke's just stood there. It's been sat there. Yeah. And then That's... when your man goes out to say, oh, any chance you'd like wash your, wash, like, wash your chat, leave us alone. He sprints off in that taxi immediately. Yeah. When that bloke comes back in and then goes, oh, he just flew away at high, like at a high speed. Surely you're thinking, yeah, <laughs> weird, weird him. 
is is there something in that the other guy is quite full on, and so he if he's not pushing her towards him, but maybe he just points out the differences there, and he does fill her head with some things. I could tell immediately there was no chemistry between you. All of these little things, and I don't know if it's just that he's something different. It's a bad look from the start, and I've got to think most women would acknowledge that even if she thinks something about the other guy, it's a, it looks like a bad personality trait that you spend 10 minutes slagging off what you perceive to be your competition. Yeah, you're very. It's real defensive and real jealous for someone that you are. You've exchanged seven words with. Yeah, and that yeah, that's what it makes it even weirder because he brings it back up. I think three mm. times. Like the conversation has started to move on, and he goes yep. back. This guy, you know, I really, I really don't like this guy. So on, so on. Maybe she just thought he was a good-looking bloke, and <laughs> that was enough. Maybe. Maybe. Didn't expect to go on a date to a porn theatre, which I know you said they were bigger. And from the reading, like I, I gather that to be the case. Strange, very, yeah, but, very strange. But I say it's wild, mate. I don't like <laughs> let people get their rocks off. How you get your rocks off? They say like as long as you ain't hurting anyone else. But honestly, you can't imagine me in a room full of thirty blokes just just knocking one. I find it baffling that people go to these conventions and things and that to me, like if you saw someone walking in the door, you're mm, a bit odd that. Yeah. If you oh. actively saw people going into a cinema where the entire showing is triple X films. Mm. Odd. Confirm. You'd be going, <laughs> that's not the bloke that I'm going to be going out with anytime soon. Correct. Um, this you talking to me scene, which is the most iconic scene of the film, mm-hmm. speaking to Harper on Monday, and he said, like like most people, I'd seen this scene, but I had no clue what it was from. Mm-hmm. He Scorsese says this was completely ad libbed by De Niro. The screenplay details said Travis looks in the mirror and that's it. He was supposed to be doing some reflecting. Yeah. Pardon the pun. It's a, it's quite a funny sequence. There's no way you can be pointing your gun down the mirror and look in any way serious. No, it's very it's very camp as well. He almost dan- he's almost dancing at one point when he's trying to work work the like the spring loaded the spring loaded weapon. Yeah, because um, I, I see some point to uh, how it shows him kind of descending and it shows him cracking up. I don't think him kind of having fun in the mirror acting out. Yeah. And almost necessarily psych- almost psych- but it's almost just him psyching himself up isn't it? yeah once he he sort he's made he's obviously made his decision at that point I don't think he's made a decision I don't think he knows I don't think he necessarily knows what that decision is going to entail at that point no but he knows the vigil he's made the decision that the vigilantism is going to be there so I mean, he makes that decision when he buys the four guns yeah 
he he's got the guns, and I'm I'm jumping ahead a bit, but leading up to the conclusion of the film, we get listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who could not take it anymore. Hmm. A man who stood up against the scum. So he still thinks he's completely doing the right thing here. Now, Paul Schrader revealed that in the original script, Travis Bickle was a racist and only targeted black men. Hmm. After discussion, it was decided that a film ending with a white man killing multiple black men and going unpunished would be morally irresponsible given the racial tensions of the time. Probably true. So Travis's racist motivation was cut from the script and sports was rewritten as a white man. Yeah, it's probably, would have probably been true, mate, to be honest. I mean, it seems mental that it took a conversation somewhere down the line to make these changes, but... Not necessarily. I mean, you have racists in films, but... I mean, not, not necessarily. I mean, could he have been a racist? Absolutely. I think does does the is the message of the film still the same though? So come the the end of the film in in which he's framed in the media, he he's glorified in the media, yeah, as this kind of lone gunslinger figure. Mm-hmm. Does can that still work in the same way? Uh, it can be intended to work in the same way, whether it works in the same way. As Actually, I guess the, the, Cause in we've that, already spoke, we've spoken about John Hinckley, the message you want to portray and the message that people take can be two completely separate, and, separate things. And from, from just rereading that, I, the character is still the same. They're just black. So he's still taken out pimps. Yeah. And also, okay. That's, I was framing it as, He's essentially a racist that's killed some people and then the, the press is still framing it as Yeah. He's a yeah. hero. Yeah, um, he'd still be killing he'd still be killing pimps and gangsters, but yeah, it'd just be him making a decision one day that I can say t- I, I I can kill these guys who happen to be black, or if he if you play it as a racist, I'm killing these guys because they're black, then it's and then he's ha- ha- heralded as a hero. Yeah. The, like that, that, it can't be a good look, and no. nor should it. The feud between Scorsese and the MPAA and the executives at Columbia Pictures over the violent content of this film supposedly gone into legend. One of the biggest rumours is that when facing an X rating from the MPAA and having to edit the film, Scorsese stayed up all night drinking with a loaded gun in his hand, preparing to shoot the executive at Columbia Pictures the next day. After an entire night of persuasion from his friends, Scorsese decided to mute the colours in the violent climax and subsequently got his R rating. There are other variations on the legend, one saying that Scorsese was planning to take his own life. Another says that he brought the gun to Columbia Pictures and threatened the executive until the executive relented. I, I, I assume the first one is probably closer to the truth. I don't can't see him killing himself over it. And I yes. feel like, I don't know, I feel like him <laughs> with guns around in a film studio, because I've never heard that before, but I feel like if he had walked into the studio and tried to shoot someone, you might have heard a little bit more about it. <laughs> yeah, that's the, it was taken down as a 
something happened here and various people have told the story yeah. and kind of pumped it up as we've gone on. Yeah. In late January 2005, a sequel was announced by both De Niro and Scorsese. Yeah. At a 25th anniversary screening for Raging Bull, De Niro talked about the story of an older Travis Bickle being in development. He'd also referenced it uh, five years earlier in a conversation with the Actors Studio. But in 2013, he revealed that Schrader had done a first draft, but both he and Scorsese thought it was not good enough to go beyond that. It's a shame, really. Because I would have loved, I would have liked it now that I've seen this, because I, I read that last night. Having seen this now, I would have really liked to have seen what does what does it i think maybe even 2000 was too late but what would have a tw- what would a 20 year old travis bickle look like after that experience can they not do it now i don't know maybe like he is literally older now but they wouldn't need to do anything to him he literally is an older de niro yeah uh, maybe a bit too old now but i think that's my issue with it yeah um yeah i, I don't know like because he's obviously he's 26 right when it comes out yes so he would have been 56. Yes. Not a million miles away from really the prime of being a bloke. Um, uh, yeah, and I think it would have been interesting to see what happened What happened post. Because so all this happens to him, right? He's in a coma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where does he go from that? Because you can't imagine that guy sits and drives, no disrespect to anyone who does, but you, but you can't tell me why the guy sits there and, and drives a taxi for another 30 years. Well, we end the film, don't he? He drops off Betsy and then he sees something in his mirror. Yeah. And that he has some kind of reaction to it. And I actually took down that the uh, writer or Schrader said... Where am I? I'll paraphrase it. He he essentially said, this wouldn't have been the last time. Yeah. Like, he would have done it again, and he wouldn't have been the hero this time around. Yeah. And because he's gotten away with it, it's probably going to be bigger... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he gets away with he gets away with two separate sets of murders. By the way, yeah. Never, never hear anything again about that guy he shoots in the shop. No. The other guy deals with that quite. Get out of here! I'll deal with this. Just starts beating the fuck out of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if you. I don't know if you knew this. So, in two thousand and five, it was announced that this film was going to be made into a video game and was set for release in two thousand and six. The video game was cancelled and never made it to stores, but you can actually see footage from the game online. Hmm. It looks like it looks like 2005 GTA, to be honest. Yeah, there's footage of him basically where someone's done a some gameplay footage, and it's just him shooting a body on the floor. There's one of him just banging a trash can over someone's head. Yeah, there's one of him. Um, on the top floor of a uh, car park, just shooting someone with a shotgun. And there's one of him or you as Travis Bickle, just letting loose in a nightclub. So it looks like it would have just been you going around 
being or shooting the fuck out of people. And yeah, probably having the time of your life doing so in 2005, 2006. Yeah. It looks a fairly good um, reproduction of Travis Bickle, to be fair. Yeah. So that would have been PS2. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth, it's worth having a look at with the trailer. They've, they've almost recreated the initial trailer and then it generates into uh, the video game graphics, but interesting. Not sure if, if you had the choice, you'd probably take the John Wick one, as we mentioned earlier, but correct. wouldn't turn your nose up at a Travis Bickle video game. No, I'd be interested. They, they, you'd have to progress the story, though, wouldn't you? And you'd, it would have to essentially play as almost a sequel to it, where it becomes a vigilante. Yeah, and that seems the the direction they were going with it. Yeah. What do you think about the? Let's not go straight to the climactic sequence. So he starts to gain more confidence, doesn't he? Where. He's chatting up the Secret Service agent. Yeah. Saying I could do this job. And he's at the point where he starts working out, doesn't he, to try and find some way of channeling all of this energy, this this kind of pent up feelings he has, and all it does is drive him the wrong way. Yeah. And yeah, I think you get a, you get a shot of him looking out of the window at this rally, or you, there's a poster, I think, for the politician. Yeah. It's a fairly swift downward spiral then, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. No nice nice way of saying this. Are we supposed to believe that he is a nonce or not? Uh, I don't think he is. There's a moment where There's a moment he's where asking how old he is. is yeah. And... Iris goes to unbutton his trousers and he has half a second and then he goes, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think, I, I don't think he is essentially. Um, I thought he at least gave it some thought and then I think even he realizes, and I think that's maybe part of the deal, is even this guy who is going to go on and murder seven, eight people in cold blood, mm. even he realizes this is wrong, and then he stops himself from doing whatever he was going to do. So I took, because there you are, right? There is a pause, but it's after he's tried that he's given her the. Let me, but then again, as I was about to say that, it is creepy, but it sounds creepier when you regurgitate it. Because she but looks young. She looks exactly what yeah. she is. looks like a fucking child. Um, but he gives her the speech about, look, you shouldn't be doing this. You can stop this. Why don't you go home? Blah, blah, blah. And I think basically I read it as the half second. It's almost a half second of disbelief that after all this, yeah. She's she's still she's still willing she's still trying to go. Is um, it is it just the next girl he makes eye contact with basically after Betsy? Because he he develops some level of infatuation whether yeah it's platonic or not. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. But I also think the other part of it is his regret. There there seems to be a regret over his own actions the first time round. Like he keeps a twenty 
he keeps the twenty dollars that the lad throws at him in the diner when he, he owes the fella five. He he takes that note out of the water cash per- purposely and puts it back in the pocket and then pays him. Yeah, and we do get some acknowledgement that he knows these aren't correct things he's doing. He has the conversation with Wiz, doesn't he, where he basically mm. confesses to the feelings he's having and he's almost told... Basically, so he's just told to chill the fuck out. Yeah. Great. I don't know how you do handle that conversation, to be fair. Yeah, and it's a great, it's a really good speech. Like I said, there's some... Uh, the life advice given in it about the futility of it all is it's, it's fair crack. And he's kind of like, I've had a long day myself, to be honest. In yeah, he's like, I don't no, want to be dealing with it. <laughs> I, I do like you guys. Well, I've been driving this, driving a taxi 17 years, 10 at night. It is what it is. That's who I am. So, so what do I do? I just get on with it. And so, yeah, fair play. Two more scenes before we uh, get into the judging. The conversation he has with Iris in the restaurant, which is the one that they were practicing so much, and she calls him square, mm. which is something he's taken offense with the whole way through. Yeah. And he says, You sell your little pussy for peanuts, which felt, it felt like he didn't need to go exactly there. Yeah, correct. Yeah. You are. But he, does make, he makes the point. Yeah. You call that being hip? What world are you from? It's a very good scene, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. And <laughs> I'll ask you for your man Harvey Keitel. Glad to see him. Yeah, but always glad to see him. But less so as like not in, these <laughs> in these circumstances. Yeah. Um. It still gives it a very. It still gives it a very good go. It's just a phenomenal actor but yeah seen him play better characters so this was your first time watching the film did you like the film i did i don't i haven't quite heralded heralded this as the masterpiece that others have um but i don't know if part of that is knowing a lot about the film before i watched it Obviously, there's a lot of hype with it. Did yeah. it re- did it at least reach the level of expectation you had going in? No. But and it's and so you still enjoyed it even with that. Yeah, but I was expecting like you wait you, this the way this is talked about. You're expecting like the like unbelievable like like a masterpiece. It's always going to have a soft spot in my heart because it's. Scorsese, Scorsese and De Niro. I mean, to be quite honest, that's pretty much my wheelhouse, isn't it? Um, Harvey Keitel making an appearance is never a bad thing. No, so it did. Well, it was always going to take. So it was always. It was always. It, it was always playing. It basically started in front of the eight ball. Like it was like oh, this is this. I'm going to like this, and I, I really like the performances in it, and I like. I like some scenes. I just. I, I don't know. I just don't. I'm not no. sure. It wasn't. It 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 didn't quite reach because I was expecting to come out of this and be like, "Look, I've got a new favorite film." Because the yeah. way it's talked about, that's what happens. Well, let's get into the judging. So, which film did you prefer? Uh, Taxi Driver. All right, we're tied there. 
I prefer Place Beyond the Pines. Um, which do you hard. think is more rewatchable? Taxi Driver. I'll disagree again. I actually think Taxi Driver is one, maybe the least rewatchable good film I can think of. I would rewatch the first 53 minutes of Place Beyond the Pines. Well, yeah, I see you. I see your point. With Taxi Driver, for me, I'm heralding it largely on moments more than the complete piece. And so, yeah, I I wouldn't enjoy rewatch. I don't think that's Um, fair enough. I I would watch I would watch the Gosling part of Place Beyond the Pines again, but then after that, I I don't need to. I think parts one and two for me are very similar in how much I enjoy them. And then three is a significant drop-off. We didn't actually mention it too much, but... Good. That's um, plays Cooper well, this is the thing. Bit. So almost everyone's thing is they hate the kid that plays AJ. Yeah, he's a fucking dick. Is... We're supposed to, aren't we? Well, that that's kind of the point. No, I get it. But I actually, I just like it's not only do I not enjoy the character I actually just don't like his performance I see the take there I saw someone who lives in that area say if you live around here this is actually probably what this kid in those circumstances would be like and would dress like and would speak like okay but fair enough he is an irritant so yes um, I see that much what do you think is the best moment slash scene The best moments I've seen. Um, for purely, or purely for what, how it stands in the pantheon in the cinema, is it? She talking to me. I would also go with Taxi Driver, but it would be the final sequence in the shootout when he pulls yeah. the trigger against his own head, which I think I've told you before. I used to have that picture up on my wall. Having never seen the film? No, haven't seen the film. Okay. Um, and my nephew would come round and would like to point to all the film pictures I had, and I had to tell him the man was just covered in ketchup. Mm. And that was my way out of explaining that one, which he did just laugh and say, why, why is he covered in ketchup? And I can't tell you why, but he is. Is the answer to best quote the same as your answer to best moment slash scene? Uh, it is, or it is Wiz's speech. Okay. MVP. Travis Bickle. Hard to disagree. Best side character. Uh, it's between Leo uh, and Peter Boyle. Um, I'll give it Leo. I'm going for uh, Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah. Don't hate the play. Better character development. Uh, taxi driver. Agreed. Made easier by the fact that they cut they they cut the legs out of Goslin. Yeah. Uh, most dramatic scene. Probably the shootout. For me, it's. Leota leading Avery into the woods. 
I, I, I don't feel too much drama in the conclusion of Taxi Driver because I don't have too much of an affiliate, uh, like an affiliation with a character. And I will I say about that, see where third, it's going. Act, um, that third act in a place beyond the pines for all the bad, that scene where Jason takes him into the woods, I think he's, he's actually done really quite well. I think he's just Dane DeHaan. I think is a good actor. I don't. He has just done that. This the reproduction of the documentary, The Staircase. So I don't think he's overloaded with work right now. But as an individual, just going through even just this and Lawless, I do think he's very good. Mm. Um, best soundtrack. Place on the points. Agreed that uh, Bon Iver score to close it out. I know the score for Taxi Driver is very famous. Um, it was done by the guy that did uh, all the Hitchcock films, wasn't he? He did um, Psycho and so on. Mm. He actually died two hours after completing the score for Taxi Driver. That's really? why the film's dedicated to him, yeah. At 64. Which film do you think is more original? Um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because conceptually, I think it's Taxi Driver. No, wait. As a story, I think it's Taxi Driver because they're all themes that we've hit. Place Beyond the Pines hits all three of them, but I think the way it's shot and the, the intertwining, I think, was... I'm not sure if that's that original, but the way they do it, Makes does make it feel original. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Which I realise is a non-committal answer both ways, but um, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver feels the right answer. It would be my, my explanation to why I'm picking it there. Yeah. Um, the Place Beyond the Pines felt more original to me when I watched it, but I'm aware Taxi Driver is 1976, and that would, yeah. be, that would be why. Uh, bigger Impact... That's Taxi yeah. Driver. Best opening scene? Uh, place Beyond the Pines. I agree. Best ending? Taxi Driver. Agreed. And best chemistry? Uh, place Beyond the Pines. Also agreed. Scene one. Seven four to taxi driver. So taxi driver goes through to the next round. As I said, next week it will be City of God versus American Gangster. So Keenan, brace yourself for that. Thank you. As I said, listening to another edition. We'll be back. Adios. <laughs>